Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI. We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps. Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLOps Live. I'm Sabine, your host. I'm joined by co-host Stephen. So this is an interactive Q&A session with our guest today, Kyle Morris, who is an expert in today's topic, which is deploying models on GPU. So, Kyle, to warm you up a little bit, how would you explain kind of deploying models on GPU in one minute? Yeah, good question. I would say it feels similar to deploying a website in the early 2000s. So when I started my career, like there, there was no infrastructure to do it. And we've built a lot of tooling to get websites live and be able to handle things like scalability and like balancing out traffic and deploying in different countries. And once you're doing stuff with GPUs, that infrastructure doesn't exist. So I would call it a very similar underlying infrastructure until you dig into the weeds and we realize that it hasn't been built yet. And you ask yourself why, and you realize that there's a lot of unique latency edge cases. So I'd say the, the name of the game with GPUs is latency. Uh, slow boot times, slow inferences, if you're doing like machine learning, things like that are what block the market. And the faster you get latency in a production setting, and the cheaper you're able to host, the more accessible it is for the world. So cost and speed are the two things blocking productionizing GPU-based systems, I'd say. And that's the, the main difference of like the traditional system. And just, just to follow up on that, that question, are there like, what are like the, the three things you wished you knew? Like while you were starting out, like things around deploying in GPUs and generally just uh, uh, working with your models, working on GPUs, your models, so. There's two things I wish I knew when I started. One was containerization, like being really proficient at that. So using Docker, Kubernetes, Pulumi, mm -hmm. setting up, being able to containerize apps that rely on GPUs. So like knowing how to set up CUDA drivers, there's a lot of time that you will sink into doing that. And if you're trying to do, say you're like an early startup and you're trying to deploy a production application and you're not right. familiar with those tools, you have almost no hope with GPUs. Um, this, the second thing, that I feel like is really unintuitive, but interesting is that the applications that you use to do machine learning are primarily built for training. So PyTorch, TensorFlow, these are research development tools and, uh, and Flask, a lot of like the, the servers that you'll set up, like you'll, you'll be in a dev mode. And the big misconception people have is they go to production with tools that are meant for dev. And they don't realize like for, to give a concrete example, the number of times we've had customers try to give us a production application where they haven't enabled GPU. So like they've launched on a GPU, but they're actually just using the CPU. They don't even realize that they're, they haven't done it. And then like when you go under the hood and you realize your PyTorch script is deploying on a CPU, like little things like that. But then it goes deeper and you realize that like these tools haven't been built to run these things fast. And that's kind of the whole angle I've been coming in on is like realizing that and saying like we need a whole new suite of tools to deploy production GPU applications. So and 
I'm just going to go back to, you, you talked about uh, most of these tools being optimized for, uh, for training themselves. And I just wanted you to talk, touch on those tools a little bit, just before we dig deeper into some other areas. Like what are those, like the tools you use for deployment, for example, you know, how relevant are they? Or are they like principles I have to learn, you know, just to think about deploying in GPs or, you know, just, just let me know principles, tools and so forth. Yeah. I think it's from any sense of like programming, understanding the hardware you're running on is really important, right? So I'm a robotics engineer by trade. So I I worked on like autonomous cars before this. And if you don't understand how the hardware executes, you can't take advantage of the speed optimizations. And so like, yeah, that ties in with like people not realizing they're deploying on the wrong hardware in the first place. Like a, a GPU machine on like GCP or AWS has a CPU on it. And people don't realize they're not even taking advantage of the system. And then once you are, you need to realize that GPUs have a different way of reading, writing, using memory. And so you can do a lot of things to like mm-hmm. to speed up models significantly more than you would in a training setting. And so I think having a basic understanding of like how GPU memory works versus CPU memory, like a, a, just a basics operating system understanding will give you a new lens, like realizing that it's not all just like compute under the hood. There's a different abstraction you'll want to dig into if you're seriously trying to stress test production machine learning, like GPU applications. Yeah. Right. And uh, in terms of computes, are there like, uh, what are like the biggest differences you'd say teams should know about in terms of like uh, when they deploy on GPUs, for example, versus CPUs, or just generally use any of those computes resource? Yeah. Let me think the biggest, there's a lot I've worked with. I think the a big thing is the GPU drivers you're using and understanding, are they optimized for an ML setting? Like, are you actually loading to in front of GPU quickly? Right. So for example, like work I've done, I've taken models that take 30 minutes to load and I've optimized them to load in like 10 seconds. Uh, and then people are like, that's impossible. And it's like, no, you just haven't like, you haven't gone under the hood and realized that like, you're loading it in a sequence like you would on a CPU and GPUs don't work that way. Like you can, you can do these new things. And so I, I really think like understanding the memory interface is the big difference, right? Cause when you look at a computer, you have what, like the, you have a processing, like a unit, you have like your operating system that reads from memory, but then the, the GPU and CPU, the, the fundamental difference is like parallelism in like instructions. And so understanding if you're actually getting full use of parallelism. So I'd be like recommending to dig into like, tools that allow you to uh, visualize GPU usage, uh, like monitoring software, basically, to actually see, like, are you taking advantage of this expensive hardware you're using? Again, to attach a stat to it, like I've worked, like I'm in like the ML hosting space, right? And I've worked with dozens of people and like 90% of people aren't utilizing the GPU, like more than half, and they don't realize it. Even like really experts, like people from, coming from like Tesla, Cruise, like car companies, like they're just, it's, they're still just like not taking advantage. And like most CPU tooling has been built to take advantage of the CPU. We've had many years, um, but with GPUs, there hasn't been a lot of production machine learning yet. Like it's just, it's just starting to become a big thing. And so that's where the big advantage is. Yeah. Yeah. And are there other, like, are there other mistakes you see that people make, especially like uh, that make in terms of how they utilize or not utilize the, their deployments on the, uh, um, GPUs whenever they're deploying models. Yeah. So the biggest. Yeah, like the like what I said earlier about not actually using the GPU right. is like the biggest, yeah. the most expensive mistake. So people will auto scale up to 10 GPUs to handle traffic and they'll be saying, hey, they'll come to me and say, hey, I need to make inference faster. And then I'll 
realize you're using a CPU under the hood. Like they've deployed on a GPU and it happens that the CPU they're using is faster. So they get like a 20% speed up and they think that's the power of a GPU. And then we'll like say, no, like actually run this on the GPU properly and enable parallelism, like lower level. Uh, I think the other block is the, uh, if you're not familiar, the Python global interpreter lock. So it's really specific, but like mm-hmm. that blocks a lot of ML applications because it, in Python, the language, like most machine learning applications are written in Python right now. And it disables true concurrency or a true parallelism. And if you figure out how to like port something to like C++ or I know there's like, haven't worked much like Golang for machine learning, but I've done infra. Mm-hmm. Like you can really, you can have a true parallelism. Like I'm talking like 30x speed ups, like not, not 2x, 3x. I mean like, like 10, 30 to 32x specifically based on GPU sizes. Um, you do a lot of really cool stuff. It takes work, but yeah, that's a big blocker under the hood that people don't usually realize. And like, they don't ever get low enough to recognize it. They just think, oh, the hardware must be slow. So like basically people, I think a common mistake is people blame the hardware too soon. And they don't realize that like GPU hardware is pretty powerful if you know how to hack it. Um, and like, you don't have to immediately, like if you're, a, if you're a new engineer, the typical thing I'll see is they'll try CPU, they're like, I need faster, throw it on a GPU. They realize they're not even using it or they don't realize, and then they'll say, I need faster, use a TPU. And they're just using these like $3,000 a month's hardware. And they're still not like, they're just throwing like out of the box stuff on it. Right. And I guess the point is, is like, if you dig in, there's like 10 to 30 X improvements you can make. It takes work. So that's why like, I'm trying to democratize that and like start building the tooling there. That's kind of my focal point is like making it so others don't have to. But yeah, if you're like way ahead, like on the frontier, like say you're working at a big ML company and like there's nothing available, that's where you can create a lot right. of value. And I'll love us to deep a little bit just before we go into the community for sec- um, questions. I'll love to dig a little bit about uh, into the optimization side of things. You know, the main goal of using GPU, of course, for any team is like to run inf- the inference speed, ensure that they speed up inference speed at least as well. You know, but what are the first things you would do, especially when consider like when considering the fact that you want to optimize? Uh, whatever deployment you're doing, whether it's from the software side or the hardware side for just uh, ensuring that you have good investment. What are like the first things you would consider when thinking about the problem in this sense? Yeah. First thing is understanding, like understanding what hardware you're running on. What are the fundamental, what are the fundamental limitations of that hardware? Then two, understand how much of it you're using. So know how to use debuggers. For a CPU, for most code, like if you're doing Python, you can do step through debugging. Once you get down to CUDA, there's kind of this level where like a lot of people just stop like looking under the hood. They say, oh, that's CUDA. Like, it's not my thing. Maybe this community, it's a bit different, but like, yeah. uh, give yourself like a weekend to just be like, I'm going to be a GPU engineer and like dive into CUDA. Don't attach it to like an outcome. Just like force yourself to like get in the weeds a little, learn like how does CUDA allocate memory, be able to profile it using like, mm-hmm. even like the, bit- the most basic like command line tools, like it's NVIDIA SMI or like, but then be able to understand like how do you do the equivalent of step through debugging on a GPU and see like how much memory is being used. So like a, a good first step is just like what's my like say you're running um an ML inference. You've got a like here's a really common way that like basically if I gave this to everyone and was like go try this, like half of you will probably find a way you can better use your GPU. And this thing would be uh run your application, say it's like an ML server, and look at like how much GPU like memory is there. And then just think to yourself, like, am I using the full GPU in the first place? And then realize that you can, like, you can parallel load things. Like, that's that's a huge advantage. 
And then you'll start realizing that there's like a lot of the infrastructure is blocking on like memory virtualization. So like mm-hmm. it's actually it's hard to do that. Like there's again, like these are like deep technical problems. So I'm not saying these are like easy quick wins, but if you're really trying to push big changes on these systems, like that's where you'd start. Like just understanding, like, am I using all of this GPU capacity or is there more available? Um, and then you can start doing batching, right? Like batch inferences. So you can adjust your model. Like, uh, hopefully it's okay. I'm using very ML centric. I assume that's kind of the, the audience, but if you're doing like ML workloads, uh, you can start batch processing inputs and then you can say, go. So far, I've had models where like it takes up three gigabytes of RAM. I start batch processing and doing basically inferences in parallel. And now I'm using like 12 gigabytes of RAM. So it's still one GPU, except I'm doing uh, higher throughput. And then that means 4x lower cost for inference. So stuff like that. That all starts from understanding how to debug what you're doing, like how to actually open it up and see what's going on. And then just ask questions. And the better you can debug, the better tooling you have for debugging, the quicker these obvious things will jump up. Like you'll just, like people are smart. You'll see what's wrong. But if you don't have a debugging tool, everything's just a black box. And the GPU is just this kind of amorphous box that does things with numbers and like you just won't be able to take advantage of like the performance it can offer. Right. And we're going to come into like, uh, come back to the understanding and tooling uh, a bit later on. But I think we have a couple of questions from the community. (laughs) Yeah. So Kyle, you definitely touched upon this already. Piotr in chat also notes that uh, before ML frameworks like TensorFlow, you had to go like really low level and code in a native CUDA and it was harder, took way more time to develop, but you had a lot of control and ability to optimize your code. So he wants to know with the current frameworks, what can you really do to make the inference faster? What are typical bottlenecks and what can you do with them? Yeah, I can speak that you definitely can, like as in, right, like I'm, I, I do stuff with like, I'm working on a project called banana.dev, basically trying to do optimized ML for production. And like one example is we went in and made GPTJ like a really big transformer model load almost a hundred times faster purely by opening up libraries, hacking stuff under the hood, just starting to ask simple questions about like, how are we allocating memory? How are we like, is this the best we can do? And like, what, what is this operating system allowing us to do? So you definitely can. Uh, and yeah, I agree. Like when I started programming, right? Like I was writing gradient descent from scratch in like C++, right? So I get that like these new abstractions have removed that. So you stop asking yourself those questions, but you can take a, you can do a lot from like the Python angle. There's a certain level where like you have to start going down below the global interpreter lock into like C++. Again, because to enable like true parallelism, but you definitely can. I think the the difference is looking at like training optimizations versus production inference. Those are very different categories of like optimizing models, right? Because training is more about parallelizing across machines, doing like how do you converge on a set of weights faster? Whereas production inference is like how do you do a forward pass? Like firstly, training is backwards pass, production is forward pass, right? Very similar thing, except in production, you're trying to minimize how much compute you're using. In training, you're like, how do I maximize compute parallelism in order to train faster? Because you just have to do a bunch of these things at once. So it's more about throughput optimization on training. And in production, it's about individual call latency and price per call. And there's like, yeah, there's a whole suite of things. Like just think about the last, like the majority of people, like how many conversations you've had are about training optimization versus production. It's like people haven't really explored it a lot yet. So I see there's a second question, but- yeah. 
exactly we no but this second question is is exactly about like using gpu for inference on or in production so the question is is it only for uh batch predictions or can you really use it for near real time so for example rest api endpoint using gpu under the hood so I, yeah so i'm assuming again this means like machine learning inference and consider using gpu production the, the question depends on your use case typically. So I can speak on, I've taken maybe 50 to 100 projects from CPU to GPU. The average speed up you'll see is three to eight X on inference, just running something through a GPU, like a existing framework. So like you'll see end to end latency be faster and you can use something like a REST API. So like what I have built under the hood a bunch of times is like basically an SDK that calls a backend which just a REST API gets a task ID, pulls it, and then you kind of follow up with that task. You register it as a long-term thing in a database, and then you check the status of that task, and you have the task updated from the inference server. You have kind of like a middle layer that routes across. It's definitely faster with GPU. The, the big thing is price. So like, if you're doing something like a chatbot, most people end up needing GPU inference, right? Because you can't... If a customer sends a message and it takes 20 seconds to respond, that's way different for retention than three seconds, five seconds. So the question here is like, should you consider using GPU for production? Yes. The, the big thing you need to look at is your cost then. And like, do you have an application where this is like cost enabled? I think like, I don't want to like shameless plug too much, but like the, like the, the big thing I'm doing on Banana, like the, the project I'm working on is to make GPU hosting cheaper. And like as a full disclosure and like it, so what I can say is where we're blocked is if you have a GPU application, where say like, even if you have like serverless GPUs, you can shut them off when you're not using them. If the cost of having them on at all just outweighs the customer interaction, you wouldn't want to use GPU yet. Like, so for example, somebody comes in, they're chatting with your chat bot, you're using a GPU and their chat is 10 minutes. If that 10 minutes of GPU cost is more than that customer creates or pays to your business, then you have negative unit economics. But I think the main blocker isn't that GPUs are expensive, it's that people have them always on. And so like the... The main blocker is that only on GPUs make your unit economics crappy. So you need serverless to, you can probably like reduce it a lot. So I'd consider like those different trade-offs. Like, should you consider GPU? Definitely. It's faster. Customers love faster experience. Maybe you can give an edge case where you might not want to use GPU. I think if you're doing batch workloads where a customer doesn't need a response. So say like Friday night, you're going to run a cron job or whatever they're called now, like a basic automated job that batches through a bunch of data. CPUs can be significantly cheaper. So like that, that might be a good option for you. But yeah, like one speed factor GPUs should be like a consideration for ML for sure. Yeah, I'll just follow up to that question. We had a question from a community member, oh, some, somebody who submitted earlier, and he painted a scenario. He said they have a work, uh, use case they, they have. They moved their batch inference where they were essentially leveraging GPU for inference to more real-time, like uh, to real-time workloads because that had like, you know, the business benefits we're looking for, you know, for their users and so forth, as well as for their use case. You know, what tips do you have for this team uh, to successfully move their GPU workload from batch, you know, to real time in terms of cost saving and, you know, resource optimization? Yeah, so this particular team used to run like uh, their uh, GPU inference in their, uh, through their batch workflow. And now they are moving to a more real time, 
you know, workflow because, you know, that's what the, that's how the business has, has moved. And then that's what serves their users a lot better. You know, the team's now asking, you know, what tips do you have for them in terms of cost savings uh, using GPU in real time, as well as resource optimization? I mean, that's what we've been uh, saying so far, but maybe it's something more specific. So I first want to clarify when you say batch, you mean right. so there's two types of batching. There's batching where it's like, your calls come in at a certain time of the week and you just process them all at once. And then the second type of batching is like parallel inferences, right? So like you're you're actually sending a larger payload into your neural network. I'm assuming this means the the, the latter, which is you're processing multiple inferences at once through a network. Like you're sending in a larger payload. And then the question is like, how do you, if you want to spread it out to like individual calls, you don't need to do this huge clunky call. How do you make it near real time? Real That's time. my understanding of the question. So the, the main thing I'd want to consider if you want to speed up is like rewriting kernels for your use case. So thinking of like underlying like the, the main operation that a GPU does is like a kernel multiplication, right? For a neural network. A lot of the time I've found this is like, again, there's this misconception that like the tools you use are just perfectly optimized. And once you're in production inference, you need to like uh, challenge that assumption a lot more. You need to realize that when you go underneath, like, for example, like I've gone into like state-of-the-art libraries, looked at the kernels their GPUs are using saying like, hey, there's a better way to do matrix multiplication here and then sped it up the inference like two to three X. So I'd say that's like the immediate best way. Yeah, it's like basically if you're trying to do single call speed kernel, like multiplication is the, the best way to go or experimenting with uh, hardware that has like a faster clock cycle, like anything like that. Because if you're not doing batch, then the, those are kind of your options. Even a TPU is worth like considering if you're willing to go down the JAX path and start doing like, like just-in-time compilation and like, again, like looking at the hardware you're using. But uh, I think kernel rewriting would be the lowest hanging fruit, like if you want a 2x speed up. So, and, and that uh, may enable real-time for you, may not, but. Yeah, about the chat questions that are coming in, Kyle, don't worry, we got your back. <laughs> so yeah, we do have a question about these use cases for GPUs. So where do you see the best use cases? Obviously, ML training and inference, especially in neural nets, but is there also a benefit for some data processing workflows or things like that? Joshua is asking. So to restate, basically, other than machine learning inference, what are the... The best use cases? In my opinion, again, like I don't, I don't know the ground truth. I would love for you to go discover like what you think is the best because there's a lot to learn. What I've seen is video processing is the, the next best. As in like customers of banana.dev, like that's where they, they come to us. They're doing video processing and they're not using machine learning. They're just trying to do like, basically, I, I can't give too much detail, but like basically processing large videos and doing stuff like searching. There's not neural networks. It's just traditional processing. But on a GPU, you can do that really well because you can start bashing frames. So you can do it like 10, 30 times faster than a CPU. Try to think what else. Robotics perception. I mean, that's what I worked on before when I was at Cruise. So like processing a scene, again, a lot of it ends up being um, machine learning under the hood. It just like so happens. But like basically processing complex, like rich scenes fast is like a GPU thing. Uh, video is that, that ends up being like robotics perception, right? Because if you're building an autonomous car, you're constantly snapshotting the world. You're basically creating a, a video, but you could also have a video of different frames, like point clouds and like different data types. Anything like that, where you need like a high frame rate that is like non, like non ML, like, right? Like, like ML being like predicting the output of something, like doing an inference where, I mean, just like batch processing things, like, like searching, like traditional methods. Those would be like the, the main things I've seen. 
feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30-second pitch of Neptune AI. Okay, so we help with model metadata storage and management. That means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app. You can organize and display it however you want, search, debug, and compare experiments, datasets, and models, save your production-ready models to a centralized registry, and collaborate on your projects across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack. Just plug us right in. For more, go to neptune.ai or check our docs. They're pretty good. I wrote them. Hope that was 30 seconds. Back to the show. Good practice. Yeah. Cool. And we have some questions uh, about inference. Gagan or Gagan wants to know, how well do inference servers like TFServe, ONNX Runtime, etc. help us with Q2? That is wrapping a REST API around a huge model like Hugging Face Transformers, for example. So to clarify, this is like, how much do these tools help as opposed to just doing that? Or just like, in addition to like, if you want to serve a model, basically, how much do these tools help? That's my understanding. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I think the area they help a lot is if you're in an ecosystem where like, you're trying to quickly deploy an open source model, like it's part of a big repository that already has all this serving infra set up. You can do it really fast. So like, as a shout out, like I, I use a tool called Z. It's not mine. It's just like a cool thing out there. It basically lets you like take these repos, quickly deploy them. So like, I think like TFServe, a lot of these types of, they're, they're familiar with other deployment software. So like there's a standard interface and it's easier to set it up. Whereas if you're doing like a bare bones, like Flask app, you have to think under the hood of like, okay, can this handle load balancing? Can this like, things like that. Um, so there's, there's help there. I, I think I've, I'm kind of biased because I've gotten into the weeds enough. I've used stuff like Triton, where now I'm starting to like, uh, at least at Banana, I'm, we're building out our own stuff under the hood, right? Because we're hitting the natural bottlenecks. So I think the, maybe how I'd phrase it is like, if you're new to deploying infra or production ML, I think it can be really helpful. Like just, and then if you're trying to like really hack stuff to be faster than anywhere else on the market, you're trying to like go where no one else has gone. You can pick these tools, but ultimately you're going to end up beneath them all. And they're all just like Python, C++ under the hood. Anyway, it's all just like bits running on a GPU <laughs> at that point. And, and eventually you start realizing that all these frameworks are just little abstractions and you, uh, you lose the ability to see them as like tools in the same way. But so, so basically as a starter, I would start with them. Yeah. Until like, and in general, I'd be like, if there's a tool that solves your problem, use the tool instead of building it out. But you'll probably have to go under the hood eventually if you have any sort of like real scalability needs. Yeah, and you eventually even have to build out the hardware at the, the companies I've been at. Right. So just in case there was anything to add on these uh, inference frameworks in general, we have uh, Ricardo who is interested in knowing about your opinion on these, like, for example, Ray Serve, Torch Serve, KF Serving, and the one you mentioned, NVIDIA Triton, Inference Server, like, uh, are they useful? Do they just add unnecessary complexity? Are there any of them that are starting to shine over, over the others? Anything to add there? Yeah, I haven't used all of these, to be honest. I haven't used Ray Serve. Uh, I've used Torch Serve, KF, NVIDIA, so I can speak on those. I personally am, I'm a fan of Triton. I think in a production setting, I've seen Triton go pretty far as in it's, I've seen it scale to like teams of hundreds and like, like pretty large production workloads. And I think one thing that helps with tools like that is like, if it's in the NVIDIA ecosystem, you have GPU compatibility built in. They've done some of the under the hood of like kernel optimization, like they're, they're working on it. So it's getting better. So I think that would be my default go-to if you want like the best GPU compatibility, right? TorchServe haven't used in a while, honestly. So I, I, I can speak on based on where I've gravitated to. I don't feel like I have a global enough 
view to have like a hard opinion on like what's better. But I would say Triton is a pretty good place to start, like for for an inference server. Also, I guess I think a big thing is like not just the the inference server, but the infrastructure that it's deployed on. Like it's the big thing. So like cool, you have like maybe a bare bones Flask app or like a Sanic app or something that basically exposes a port. You're able to take a post request and re- do an inference. That's like that's an inference server. I think what becomes a bigger thing is like, where are you deploying this? Is this just running on an EC2 instance without auto restart? Is this in Docker? Is it on Kubernetes? Are you like, like, are you doing cloud agnostic deployment? Like that's where the reliability comes in more than the individual server. So I'd almost zoom out and say like, they, if you hyper fixate on these individual servers and you're not getting a win out of them, then it might be unnecessary complexity. Uh, A lot of the applications I've deployed in production were like literally Torch or like, TensorFlow, like we got the model and then I like rack, wrap it in an app. And then I've noticed that the biggest failure modes come from, think about it, like it's it's not the individual server. It's like make the server run reliably, you're good. Now the problems become auto-scaling, cold starting, load balancing, like all those things which are outside of the uh, individual server. So that's how I look at it. But like if you're getting a huge return out of it, like keep drilling in. I just, yeah, I wouldn't fixate too much. Like I, I feel like the GPU game really becomes a lower level game. Like if you're, there's, there's two camps. Like if you're trying to just deploy something, use a framework, use a tool, get it out there, have the reliability. If you're trying to optimize a GPU production workload, then you're going to have to just get in the weeds. And that goes below these frameworks. Like you'll be committing pull requests to these probably. <laughs> like we need more people doing that. And, and speaking of uh, infrastructure, we, we have one question, in fact, from the community submitted. So he, th- this person asks, you know, what do you think of um, serverless GPUs? Uh, what problems have you found with uh, working with them? And they are planning to migrate their workloads to serverless. But the thing is, they are thinking about the low latency tolerance, you know, the cold start problem with uh, serverless and so. Yeah, I mean, I can, yeah, this is like, this is my passion problem. So I'll try, I want to make sure I answer it uh, correctly. So so basically the understanding here is like, why? What problems have you found have, with uh, uh, using serverless GPUs pretty much? Yeah, so the the first problem is that like, they're not provided out there. So that's why I'm trying to build a solution for them, like something that's reliable. The main reason they don't exist from my understanding is the ability to cold start a model. So like, uh, I can give you an example. Like if you were to go build out serverless GPUs, I can explain how your next three months would basically be. It would be like, you would start off by having a model. You want to set up like auto scaling or some something. The first thing you're going to find is provisioning GPUs can take multiple minutes just to get access to something. Once you have a GPU available, loading a typical model can take like five to 20 minutes to put into GPU memory using Torch, a TensorFlow, any of the traditional libraries. So you'll need to go in and like really optimize model boot time. So like at Banana, that's the, that's our sole focal point is like, how do we take booting a model from like 20 minutes down to like seconds? And basically, if you can do that and your inference speed is the same speed, then you can shut the computer off. Right. And I think the analogy is like, imagine. Uh, like imagine you had a car and you need that, like, you know, that you might have to go do a really important trip. Like say it's to, like a hospital or like to a friend's place or something. And you don't know, you don't know when you just know at some point you're going to have to do it. And that car takes like 30 minutes to turn on. Then you're probably just going to leave the car on all the time. And that's the problem we have with GPUs is like, since machine learning workloads takes so long to boot, people just leave the GPU on because like, it's the only way to guarantee customers have a good experience. So the main problem with serverless GPUs, like enabling them then is latency, like getting rid of that because then you have the equivalent of a noise on machine. 
like the, the customer experience, except you're saving like 90% or more. And we're, we're on our way to doing that. Like we've gotten it down 95 to 99%, but it's still not enough in a lot of applications, right? Like real time chat bots, it can be like, it can be okay if you have like a, say customer comes in and you can notify the GPU to turn on and you, you have like five, 10 seconds. But if your application needs like sub second, it's just not there yet. It's extremely hard. And I can explain why it's hard. Like if you want to boot a machine in sub second, you need to be able to load memory onto a GPU in sub second. And the state of the art SSDs uh, load at a three to four gigabyte a second rate. And so it's just like, there's a theoretical boundary on the ability to load memory onto hardware fast enough to put a 20 gigabyte model into memory in like less than five seconds. We're trying to look at ways around it. Like, so there's that, there's that constraint. There might be like, we're experimenting with like sharded loading. So like loading across multiple GPUs at once and then doing sharded inference. So that way each GPU only has to load one second worth. And so like spreading out layers of the network, basically. That's like basically the, the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah. All right. We can take some questions from uh, chat. So we have one from Andres. Do you have a take on cryptocurrency mining in the cloud? Would it be feasible to deploy a cryptocurrency mining grid on the cloud and adapt the GPU load based on the complexity of the hashing algorithm? I'm not like a crypto expert. I was in the scene early on, but then I, I dipped out. I've been doing ML for the last decade. I can give a little bit of context though. Is, yeah, you could. Typically what I've seen is like mining ends up not having the biggest ROI. Like uh, the exception is if you're doing kind of the same model as Uber, which is like you have an unused car and you see you rent it out. You have an unused GPU and you do that for mining. That could be cool. So I think one use case would be really interesting, which I would love. I'd be a customer if anyone here builds this, is find people who have GPUs that they forgot to turn off in the cloud. And in the past, and if you if you forget to turn the GPU off, mine, mine something with it. Um, so like make use of it. That That's an example. But if you just deploy them like, I think it's feasible. Like I, I haven't drilled in enough to understand like looking at hash rate and like what's your ROI. But I've tried the, the mining scene and like typically you end up like you make something, but it has to be like a really deep focus. If you're wanting to do it technically with something like banana, you could you could deploy a uh, Bitcoin miner. <laughs> I don't know what cloud providers think about it. So I'd have to check the terms of service. But yeah, I think there's you can do it in the same way as machine learning. Yeah. And then we have more of a uh model maintenance question from Piotr. So let's assume that we have a model in production that is retrained manually by data scientists, um, potentially a change of network architecture, extra features, stuff like that every three months. Does it mean that the production code has to be rewritten by, for example, ML engineers manually to be optimized for GPU with each update? Okay, yeah, that's a really good question. So basically saying like, if, is it just the weights that are changing or is there like other things, right? Because their ML models have different components. There's the code and the weights, basically. If you think about it, you just have this network defined in some language, then you have a bunch of weights loaded onto the network. Typically, if the weights change, you don't have to change the underlying code. So weights are the thing that are most frequent. Like if you fine tune a model, you don't have to change the underlying code and therefore you don't have to re-optimize. The second thing is, even if the, the weights, or like the architecture changes, Typically, you'll want to write abstractions that capture a broad set of neural nets. Like you don't want to hard code your optimizations to be for one net. That's not usually how it works. Like for example, if you're doing something like like Keras, that's a really high level abstraction. They have like, they have like what Keras sequential. They have some like layers API. 
if you're like optimizing that, you want it to make sure that any sort of layers passed in with that API are compiled down into like optimized GPU code um, or in interpreted, whatever, depending on what you're using. And so typically you don't have to change it a lot. I'm trying to think of an exception to that because I think that would be more valuable than just saying you don't have to. I think an, an exception is if you're doing, so right at Banana, we do a lot of like stuff with booting stuff, booting machines fast. One cool edge case is like, if you keep changing the weights or you have many different weights, you need to think of like how to store and load those quickly. So it's like storage becomes like an actual bottleneck. Like just like that becomes a thing where more of your problems come from is like, where do I put all these optimized weights? How do I track like what, like what needs to go into the model and then cache it, uh, make that process fast. That's where the most time will be spent. Not usually your code though. Thanks. We have another question from uh, Marcelo. Uh, as you were saying, there seems to be a contraposition between having low latency when doing inference and reducing costs. Uh, if you want to be able to do inference fast enough, memory has to be loaded on memory and there's paying for its costs all the time, even when not used. Is there a workaround to this? Basically something that gives both uh, GPU low latency and charges by its use. Yeah. So like... I think it depends on the end customer experience. So I'm assuming everyone's building for customers here. Maybe that's an incorrect assumption, but somebody's consuming the output of your model. That's my assumption. If your customers need like a really quick like response, um, you can do stuff like predictive availability of GPUs. So like basically speed and cost have a trade-off. And the the only way I've found to work around it is by having GPUs available when you need them. So like serverless GPUs, but then there's two camps like Serverless GPUs still take a few seconds to boot up. So if that's okay for your application, I would just use serverless GPUs, like personally, like that's, that's the main way to get a 10x saving. If your application needs like real-time response and it's completely unpredictable when it's coming up, that's another, that's like an unsolved problem still where you just basically have to make inference faster without the cost going higher. So again, kernels um, are a thing going down the ASIC path. So like creating a custom circuit uh, that like performs operations on like a hard-coded network architecture that's another that, that's definitely another angle uh, i think a simple one would be like really trying to do predictive traffic and so saying like say say your application needs to respond quick and you have five gpus that are always on can you find a way to have just one always running and then have the other four auto scale when they're needed so then like you can handle 99 percent of traffic spikes except you're not paying for five always on machines like that's that's where you'll save the most and without, so, so I guess I'm rephrasing to like, how do you save money without sacrificing latency? That would be the best way I've thought so far. And then if you want to just, the, the other way is just like really deep R&D, like solving these hardware energy bottlenecks and like, which is a thing like at, uh, at Cruise, I know we were, we're getting into this, like going really, really low level below, like, like into the hardware. So most, most teams probably don't do that. So yeah, if, and if anyone here is like interested in like serverless GPUs, obviously, I don't know how to get in contact, but like DM me. That's the thing I'm trying to do. Would love to help better. We have a bit of an on-prem versus cloud question from uh, Shrikant. How do you look at on-premises GPU cluster managed by NVIDIA AI enterprise software suite in combination with Red Hat OpenShift or VMware Tanzu over something like AWS Stack or Azure Stack for the same GPU cluster managed by EKS, for example? Uh, okay, I want to make sure I get this. So you're <laughs> asking specifically about on-prem on-prem experience. So like in a VPC, like a virtual product cloud, 
having access to like your resources. Um, so I assume there's like a privacy concern or something. And you're asking about multiple different clouds. So I haven't worked in depth with all of them. I've used I've used like GCP, AWS, experimented with some others. I think the thing I would optimize for when you're starting is like if you if you're using Kubernetes and you have like a container abstraction beyond everything, you can um basically change cloud providers fairly easily. I found like there are some headaches, but I would look at the one that provides the abstractions that are easiest to deploy your application on as like a first start, because I think the bottleneck most people have early on as a company is like not yet latency or cost. It's like, just is, are they building something valuable for people? Like, especially if you're a startup. So I'd be optimizing for like deploying quickly learning. And then what I've noticed is that like at a large scale, a lot of these providers kind of balance out like, the GCP will cost way more in one area, but then it'll save you money on this other offering. And so, for example, like I'm trying to, I can't quote exact numbers for like Azure, but I know like there's a set of EC2 instances that are a lot more expensive on AWS than they are on GCP. And like that's a quick win. But then you go in and you look at network costs are more on GCP and like just starts normalizing. So um, I'd really optimize for like what is the, like I'd be asking questions like which one is your team familiar with? Like, uh, are you using abstractions that make it easy to be cloud agnostic? If not, that's more of a problem. So if you're not using stuff like Pulumi, I'd be like deeply considering that. Um, with Pulumi, it's like one of my favorite tools I found in the last like year because basically you can just like deploy on AWS GCP using the same Python code. You don't have to like you don't have to go into the console, and then that'll reduce a lot of these decision variables. So it's kind of like focusing on the focusing on the decision that saves you most time globally is like, how do you make your code cloud agnostic? And then just like kind of pick, like th then the decision is as high stakes, right? Because really what you're asking is like, oh, all these providers vendor lock me. And so I have to make this big decision because I know it's hard to switch. And so if you remove that assumption, you make it easy to switch, you can get the best of both worlds. You can even do multi-cloud um, deployment. So you could say like, for a high GPU workload, use uh, GCP, which I think would be a good option in my recommendation. Not sure about Azure. And then if you're doing something like high network bandwidth or like privacy centric AWS has a lot of good offerings like EKS. Yeah. And we've spoken a lot about tools today. Uh, I think we should bring it all together, probably tie it all together. What are like your key tools for, you know, GPE model deployments? The ones you walk with and, you know, find useful? Yeah. Basically be Docker, Kubernetes, Pulumi. Those would be the three. Like if there was three tools, if those are three tools that you could have on an island and you had to build a, a production stack you just had those three tools, assuming you had a computer, those would be the three I would take. The I know there's probably some specific container uh, runtimes coming out that work with Kubernetes, like Container D, I believe. There's some others you might want to explore with, but like you, you need container orchestration if you're trying to do a production workload because you need to be able to wire it into infra that does like restarting logic and all that. Yeah, that, that'd be my <laughs> very simple, those three. Um, right. And just, just before we go into the community, of course, one thing we've, been saying a lot is uh, cost savings, especially in terms of GPs. And, you know, one of the key barriers to using GPs, of course, uh, the prices, you know, you don't want to wake up one day and, you know, you're having thousands of dollars <laughs> because you just simply left an EC2 instance on with your GPs and everything. So what are you like your top tips for like saving costs? You know, we talked about serverless, which is like, you know, one thing, but are there other things I could do to save costs with, uh, you know, with playing around with GPs or deploying models in GPs? Yeah. It's a good question. So other than serverless, what would be the biggest cost savings? The easiest. So like I'm measuring this based on how hard it is to do and how much it saves you. 
the easiest is what I said earlier, which is look how much memory your model takes. Put it on a GP with less memory if you can. Like that, you just cut your cost in half. That's pretty amazing. Like a lot of inference servers have memory leaks in Torch. Like a lot of Torch code has memory leaks, like more than 50%. <laughs> and so what happens is it keeps creeping up in your memory trace. If you're able to fix stuff like that, you can keep on a machine with less GPU memory. The other would be like, how do you pack multiple models onto one GPU? That's a problem we're trying to solve right now. Like we're working on it because under the hood, these tools don't let you do that naturally. Like it, there's not a, there's not an accessible virtualization layer for GPU memory. And so that becomes a headache, but that would be the kind of second bet of like, like the natural thing is just like, how do you put things with multiple memory on the same GPU? And then third, I think is this is if you're willing to sacrifice performance a little bit, which most teams in my experience aren't willing to, but like, uh, if you're willing to give up one to 5% of performance, uh, quantization. So like reducing the size of your model weights by changing it from like a float 64 or float 32 down to a eight bit float, you can reduce the model size by two to four X and yeah, you, you sacrifice performance there, but that's like a really easy win, uh, that I would recommend for. I'd recommend like a hybrid approach. So maybe if you're again, like I'm speaking to kind of like seed stage series A companies, like early stage products, but like look at, uh, say you're doing a demo application. Okay. You need speed. Can you quant, can you do quantization on the model? So it's like four times cheaper. You just have it always on. You can offer it as a demo, but then power users that need that like really good quality. Uh, the people that are paying you, you give them a different model that doesn't have that. So it has that extra 5%. I'll see a lot of teams do this where they'll, they'll basically switch between which model they're using depending on the customer type. Uh, and I think if you're smart about that, if you integrate the product mindset with the engineering mindset, and not everything is just an engineering problem. It's also like, what do your customers need? You can start uh, being clever about that. You can say like, here's the cheap model for the front end person. And then like, the people that are really forking over money, they get this model. Right. And like, yeah, that I think there's like, you can easily, each of those things, you can cut your costs in half, which is pretty great. Yeah, definitely. All right. We have uh, another question from Ricardo. Uh, which tools or frameworks would you use to build a composition of models? That is an inference request that needs to be processed by many models, possibly running in a distributed environment of different machines. Each of them maybe with separate resource constraints, auto-scaling policies, and such. Interesting. So model chaining. I'm trying not to be too biased because like, right, like I, I have one way I do this with the product I'm building. I'm trying to challenge myself and think like, what are the other ways to do it? The, the simplest abstraction is to like treat each model as a separate entity that you can call with a couple lines of code, abstract it away so they're not all wired in on the same machine. If latency... So let's treat, let's look at the case where the goal is a really clean architecture, then what you would probably want to do is have like an orchestration service like that is able to send a request to each of these models individually. And it basically does a pipeline of calls. So like if assuming these are big models, they might each run on a different server. And you would basically want like a conveyor belt process that like calls the server, gets the response, plugs into the next server. That's like a really clean design because then you can do like logging at each step around the pipeline, you'll avoid like kind of the chaos of just like running out of GPU memory. And like, then the optimizations would come in of like, you're going to have network latency, right? If you're doing a network call in between all these and chaining them together, that scales really well, because then you can, um, you can basically, you can auto scale parts of this chain based on the bottlenecks. So you can like 
like that'll that'll be easier short term. Once you need long term uh, savings, then the bottleneck is network latency. So you'd want that same architecture, but how do you pack models on the same machine? And then you can call both of them on the same server. So like uh, with Banana, what we have is like a middle layer. So you have a Python SDK. You have like uh, a function like banana.run or whatever SDK you're using. And it calls this middle layer, which then routes it to a machine. And if you have a chain of models, you just call like six different run commands and you tie them together. And then behind the scenes, you can pack them on the same machine as like a performance optimization. But the end user shouldn't have to change their code. Like I think the biggest headache you'll get is having to keep changing application code to work with these new like chained inference servers. So having an abstraction between the user and like this like lattice of models will save you a lot of headache because like each time you have to change application code, that's like a new pull request, that's a new testing. And it's like, it really adds up. People underestimate it. So, yeah. Mm. We had a question as well from Marcelo. Uh, many times model ML models are available as PyTorch or TensorFlow models, but their performance increases when converting them to TensorRT. Does this always happen or does it only apply to certain types of neural networks? Have a take on that. I don't know, uh, to be honest, I don't know the underlying working enough to say with confidence. I can give like, I I would encourage you to go through, I don't want to claim I know this basically, but I would assume with stuff like recurrent networks, there's going to be better optimizations because you can cache weights uh, for anything with a cyclical network. But yeah, I really, I really wouldn't know enough. Like I haven't worked with like the underlying of these tools enough. I would just be speculating and I don't want to waste anyone's time with like a total guess. I'd rather answer (laughs) if I know. That's all right. Uh, We did have a follow-up to the question before. Any orchestration framework you would recommend for real-time inference? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I'll obviously plug Banana because I think that's one of the things we're trying to solve. You'd have always-on machines, but like uh, we're we're working on a self-service tool. So like trying to make it so you just upload your model and then get back a ability to call it. And it'd be real-time in the sense that it's on a GPU, it's always-on, it would cost more. So if you're doing serverless, you'd have... uh, you basically uh, get extra latency there. I'd, I'd want to follow up. There's some other tools I've seen. Uh, again, I'd recommend like Z if you're trying to plug together a bunch of inference servers. Like I, I find that tool is really helpful. It's cloud agnostic. You can just kind of click on a repo, deploy it, and then chain them together. The real-time nature is more about what hardware you're running on and like does it support your use case. It's not really a framework level thing, in my opinion. It's kind of like like real. Real-time inference is something that you have when your inference is fast enough that it's like 32 frames a second or whatever. You could do that on many different uh, frameworks. Like frameworks like how you wire it in. Real-time is the the speed of your inference, which are two separate problems. Cool. Yeah. And I think we have time for one more question, which uh, which was from Piotr in chat. Have you ever experienced any numerical stability problems when you downsize the model by reducing floating precision? It's a complicated one. So I want to make sure I understand the, the question. By numerical instability, do you mean like exploding gradient? Like uh, like basically you change the weights and then suddenly the output just becomes garbage because of a propagating calculation through like changed weights. Uh, I want to make, yeah. Yeah, you'll get this. Uh, you'll, you'll have this as an asymptotic behavior relative to the precision loss. So what I'll notice will happen is you go from 64-bit floats to 32. There's like almost no instability. Uh, 32 to 16 tends to be okay. 16 to 8, you'll start seeing it potentially. Um, and then like 8 less, it just like quickly drops off and becomes uh, garbage. And I don't 
know all the the math behind it. Um, but in practice, it's like, yeah, I would treat it as an asymptote that has a wall once you approach the 8-bit precision. And I think this also depends on network size. Like the, lo- the longer the network is, the more multiplications, the larger chance there is for error to propagate through uh, precision. So uh, it's especially a thing, uh, to give you context, it's especially a problem in recurrent networks. So if you have, and maybe I'm using recurrent incorrectly here, networks where you have feedback loops, you're running something through multiple times before you're passing it to the next layer, if you're doing repeated calculations. Basically, the more multiplications there are, uh, that error will grow. And when you think about it, the difference between 64 and 32 is very deep precision versus 8 bits to 7 bits or 8 bits to 4 bits is like a huge gap in like, the, it's a huge information loss relative to the uh, the other type. So you'll, you'll start seeing it faster. But yeah, it's, it's very ad hoc. Apologize. I'm sure there's like uh, papers that show the actual asymptotic downs on this. I remember seeing some, but I don't have like, I don't think I have a deep enough math understanding or the numbers of my head to, to let you know exactly when it happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I know we're running out of time, but I just have one final question to wrap this all up, you know, to tie everything down. So I come to you, I'm trying to optimize, you know, my GPU model for like inference. I come to you and you walk me through the process you would take me through from, you know, just having my model to being able to run real-time inference on GPUs and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got two paths, right? So we have self-service, which we're we're in really early MVP right now. You can try it out. I could follow up with like a Git repo. Basically, you follow some instructions and then you can upload your model to our servers. You'll get back two lines of code that you can call it. So you get like an API and a model key and that'll give you like serverless GPUs. The second type is will help you. So we would like with people that don't want to go through the headache of like figuring that stuff out, we can set up like a Slack channel and our team will literally work with you. We're still early on. So we, we want to have that hands-on experience of like understanding individual customer pain points. But yeah, I can, uh, if there's a way to share a link after, it's just like banana ML on GitHub. We have a repo available. It's fully automated pipeline. There's not a lot of front-end UX yet, mainly because our team is not a front-end team. We're very deep, deep R&D engineers. And so... Yeah, if there's anything you get stuck on, be happy to help. But um, what I can say we currently offer is like a, a typically like a five to ten x cost reduction because you don't have to have machines on all the time. And so we've got people in like the autonomous vehicle space. We've got like audio applications, uh, image generations, like GANs, a lot of different types of applications running. Uh, be, would love to hear about what you're working on. So is there a way for people to like reach out? I don't know. I could drop like a a LinkedIn or if you guys have it, but yeah, sure. basically anyone here. And also uh, informal, like, I like just helping people with like the GPU problems. If you have any more questions, just hit me up. Like, I'm happy to uh, be a touch point. Like, this is the one thing we're probably good at. I like using that <laughs> to, to help the industry. I think it's very behind in terms of like production ML right now. And so it could probably save you a few weeks or even months just with a couple tidbits of advice if it wasn't communicated in this conversation yet. Excellent. So LinkedIn would be the place to connect with you. Uh, is that right? And also through Banana and Slack. Yeah, you can do. Uh, I think my I have to like double check what what my LinkedIn is, but I could drop it in here. I think like we Twitter, do. Kyle J. Morris. You can share it however you want. It is indeed time to wrap it up. So thank you so much, Kyle, for being with us here. It was wonderful to have you. Sweet. Absolutely. Uh, you can, of course, also submit your questions for 
next time, uh, especially if you cannot make it to the live event, we will be back in two weeks. And our guest that time will be Federico Bianchi. And the topic will be testing recommender systems. So see you guys on socials and in Slack. Thanks again very much to Kyle and uh, everyone else who participated and asked your questions. See you again soon. Talk to you. Take care. Awesome. Bye, Kyle. Bye, bye. Bye, bro. Thanks all. Yeah. Thanks for the questions. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. We run it every other Wednesday and you can register at neptune.ai slash events. And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and anywhere you get your podcast. Click follow and don't miss any episodes. Thanks and see you next time.